Good to see each one of you back in the Lord's house tonight. Well, let's all stand together and turn to page 294. That song the ladies have been playing, My Savior's Love. We'll sing the first, the fourth, and the fifth verses as we begin together tonight. Sing it out on the first. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me he took my sins and my sorrows he made them his very own he bore the burden to calvary and suffered and died alone how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me when with the ransomed in glory his face i at last shall see twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me amen him because he first loved us amen sure thankful that you're here uh tonight enjoyed uh this morning and and the ministry of john the baptist and and looking forward uh to tonight as uh, brother tim uh, quinlan our youth director uh preaches tonight and so let's go to the lord in prayer ask god's blessing on our services i'm gonna ask brother david griffin if you would pray for us tonight brother Amen. Why don't you be seated uh, tonight? Just wanted to mention a few things uh, with announcements. As already kind of mentioned this morning, it is kind of a quiet time here. Uh, probably what we would call the calm before the storm. Amen. Uh, but of course, uh, wanted to mention, of course, tonight, Brother Tim uh, Quinlan's going to be preaching, and then of course we roll uh, into January here in the next week, or, or I'm sorry, February. Uh, in the next week or so. I didn't have my nap today, so I'm a little off, all right? Uh, but February the 2nd and 3rd, is, which is on a Friday and Saturday, is the Midwest Couples Retreat. And so did want to mention this, any of the married couples that signed up, please make sure that you turn in uh, your money. Uh, accordingly, uh, you can just get a, a tithing envelope and just write on their couples retreat and make sure uh, that you turn uh, that in. There's also a youth rally uh, at Temple Baptist Church in El Dorado, Kansas, Friday, 
uh, February the 9th. If you have kids in, in Faith Baptist School, uh, you need to be aware that on Tuesday, February the 13th, is the Valentine's Day party from 1 o'clock until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So all that means is that your kids are going to come home very wound up with sugar. Amen. Uh, February the 16th will be the next round of volleyball and basketball games versus Heritage uh, Baptist School. Again, that's on a Friday night. That will also be away there at Heritage Baptist Church. And those will begin at 5 uh, p.m. And then, of course, our churchwide outreach uh, February uh, the 17th. And some other things coming up towards the end of the month, of course, the, the uh, Meerhoff and Needfelt uh, wedding, uh, which is February uh, the 24th. That's on a Saturday here at the church, and that'll be at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. wanted to mention uh, tonight uh, just kind of my heart uh, by having uh, Brother Tim uh, Quinlan preach and, and Brother Eric. I really appreciate our staff. And both of these guys handle the Word of God very, very well. And, of course, with a lot of the traveling and responsibilities and different things that I have, Brother Eric uh, ends up, uh, he's going to be preaching a lot of Wednesday nights uh, this uh, year. And so, be a fact, I've already signed him up on a multitude of different things. And so, uh, he, I said, you got to get through the book of Psalms, brother. Amen. He's been preaching through the book of Psalms. But Brother uh, Tim Quinlan, of course, is over... Uh, working with the youth department, but I want to be able to have him preach on Sunday nights uh, every now and then. And so my heart is, is that he would preach at least one time a month on Sunday night, and uh, just a blessing. Uh, I have enjoyed him taking us through the book of First Peter, and looking forward to Second Peter if that's where the Lord uh, leads him. And so that's kind of the idea uh, by having uh, him uh, preach uh, tonight. And I know in February he's going to have a couple of Sunday nights. Uh, where he's going to preach, but I believe he'll be a blessing uh, to us uh, tonight. Also wanted to mention this, there are the bookmarks uh, back there on the uh, table here in the sanctuary, and so it has some dates of things that are coming up, uh, like our uh, youth rally in March, our missions conference April the 10th uh, the for, through the 14th. Looking forward to having Brother Terry Randolph here with us preaching our missions conference this year. And then, of course, we have a lot of other things, our, our camps, our vacation Bible school, our fall revival, all that stuff is on here. And so I know a lot of times when you're scheduling things or you're planning things like your vacation and stuff like that, uh, a lot of times people will plan something and then miss something big that's happening uh, here at, at church. And so this is how you can know uh, what's coming up. And by the way, I would schedule around what's going on at church, amen, and uh, that's the way it ought to be. And so I want to encourage you. Uh, to get uh, one of those. Well, as many of you know, we were able to go to the church planning conference at Heartland Baptist Bible College uh, this past uh, week. We actually uh, designated, um, and, and I'm thankful we were able to move, we were able to move up from giving $5,000 to giving $7,000, and we gave every bit of it away, amen. And uh, be a fact, I'd said uh, to somebody, I think a couple of times this morning, we were driving back Thursday night and listening to the services, and I looked over at Natalie and said, wish we had more money to give away. Uh, but I just wanted to share some things uh, with you tonight. Before I get into this, I also wanted to mention uh, this uh, as well to our church uh, that uh, we, we met uh, as the board of directors there at Heartland Baptist Bible College. And we voted. Uh, there, there was a, um, a situation where we could pay off the last remaining amount of, of debt uh, on, the, on the school, on one of the buildings that we had left to pay off the Sam Davison Biblical Preaching uh, Center. 
And so we voted as the board of directors to pay off the last remaining debt, and they paid it off that afternoon. And so Heartland Baptist Bible College, with 25 years in 25 years of existence, is completely debt-free. And I uh, just thought that was a real uh, blessing. I told our Sunday school class, I second in the motion. I don't normally do stuff like that, but I was in on that one. Amen. Uh, and uh, I just thought that was really uh, neat. And so I wanted to share that uh, with you. Well, some of the, the church planners that we were able to give to, just read a few of them to you. Uh, the, the first one that's on the list here is Ernesto Alfaro. And uh, he is, uh, th- this was a couple of the Spanish uh, ministries that they had. Uh, that were able to present, and he is uh, planning uh, Iglesia Bautista, and of course that's Baptist Church, and then uh, the rest of it, Nuevo, uh, Amenizer, I'm not sure how to pronounce all those things, but anyways, it's in Houston, Texas. All right, how about that? Uh, And just a wonderful testimony, saved at age 14 in the bus ministry, how about that? And uh, it's got a building, and uh, needs some material, uh, to update it and things like that. Uh, he ha- already has 60% of his support from his sending church. And I think that was a really, that was a really neat uh, thing right there. But anyways, they're planning on starting this August. And we were able to give $500 uh, towards that uh, need. Another one that I really enjoyed was Brother Raymond Bell. And uh, he is planning North Killian Baptist Church in Killian, Texas. If you don't know where that's at, it's right. It's actually, this is going to be right outside of Fort Hood uh, there in, in Texas. And he is, a, he is a black man and he is a military man. And the reason that I mention those two things is only to say this. He's going to have a lot of open doors to reach the military where guys wouldn't. And so that's, that's kind of his goal. They're actually starting in April and he just had, has a, a tremendous, I actually saw his, his doctrinal questionnaire, and I'm like, we need to support this guy, amen, and uh, be, be in fact, let me say this tonight, I'd like to get it to where you trust me enough that maybe we could take on some of these guys for support, and, and, and then come back and report. I, me personally, I, I have always wanted it to be where if you want support monthly, I want you to come, I want the church to get to know you and your family but I also think it'd be good if we could just go ahead and do it, and then if they can get by, we, we'll take them on. But, it, you know, e- either way, there, there's a lot uh, to discuss there, but I just thought that was a real, that really burdened my heart. But he's starting in April. He needed a vehicle, and so we were able to give $800 towards that. I will also say this, that somebody did give them a 2015 van, and they were able to raise $57,000 uh, in that one time. And I thought, man, that's awesome right there. And uh, so that was a real uh, blessing there. And I was thinking, they need to let me present. Amen. I got a burden. Amen. I need bigger Jeep things. Anyways. Uh, the next one was Austin Brown. He's planning Hope Baptist Church in Hoover, Alabama, which is a suburb of Birmingham. He's got 53% of his support already raised. They're starting in September. We were able to give $500 uh, towards uh, their uh, need there. Uh, th- this was what I found was interesting. The city of Hoover, Alabama, a suburb of Birmingham, has a 90, has 90, a population of 90,000 and has no independent Baptist church. Pretty interesting. The, the, I'm just, you know, we, we talk about the Bible Belt. Well, let me just help you with that. The buckle came off a long time ago, and uh, churches need to be planted Nicholas Brown is planning Long Branch Baptist Church in Savannah, Missouri, which is just north of St. Joe, Missouri. They are sent out of New Life Baptist Church. 
uh, in Garnett, Kansas, Brother Chad Lee Master, and a good friend and a good brother, and was actually talking with him uh, last year as this was taking place, and we were on an ordination uh, together. They already have a building, and if I'm not mistaken, it was an old, I think it was an evangelical church that had shut down. They were able to take the building and turn it into Long Branch Baptist Church, amen? And uh, so they, they've got that building. They were able to raise $42,000. We were able to give $800 uh, towards uh, that. Brother Dell Hotel was there uh, that we already support, and so we were able to give $500 towards uh, their ministry as they are getting started. Sure thankful they got a house to rent over there in Santa Barbara and excited about what the Lord uh, has for them. Uh, Jared Estramondo. Uh, Estramado is preached, is started, uh, actually started already back in 2022, Eagle Point Baptist Church in Eagle Point, uh, Oregon. They're already running 30 to 40. Uh, they uh, have some property, and so they are looking to build a building, and so we were able to give $500 towards that, and I thought that was a great uh, testimony a- as well. Uh, th- this is another one I wanted to mention, uh, James Kim starting City Light Baptist Church in Irvine, California. He's South Korean with an Australian accent. And I was like, I got to give something towards that, right? No, this is what, this is incredible. His parents were saved in South Korea through missionaries sent out of Brother Joe Dickinson's church in El Paso, Texas. And uh, we we support a couple of missionaries out of uh, that church down there, uh, the Frasers. Uh, Robert and Sandy Frazier in Juarez, as well as um, um, the Kitchen family uh, in Grace Baptist Church over in Germany. And uh, I just thought that was really awesome. So that's how his parents got saved. He got saved. Uh, he ended up going from South Korea to, sa- to the South, our South, in Alabama. So you want to talk about really messed up, amen? He's actually already pastored a church in Alabama, so now he's starting a church in Irvine. California, and I just thought that was really cool. We were able to give three hundred dollars uh, towards that. Nicholas uh, Talarita, I believe, is how you pronounce his last name. Uh, th- this was another guy that had a very good questionnaire, a doctrinal uh, questionnaire, and just a solid, solid young man and young family. Uh, they are starting in June of this year, North Point Baptist Church in Wheeling, Illinois, which is a suburb of of Chicago. They already have a solid group meeting in a community center, and that's awesome, amen. And so they're actually, he's actually got, he has to get ordained. Then they're going to have the grand opening in June, and they're already looking for a bigger place to meet because they're growing. It's amazing. It's encouraging, isn't it? God's still at work, amen. This isn't the only place he works. You know that, right? And I'm glad he works here, but he is certainly at work in, in other uh, places. And so just wanted to mention uh, some of these uh, here tonight. I also wanted to mention a couple of other ones. These were churches that uh, had already been started. One of those was Brother Mike Caldwell and a good brother there in Fayetteville, Arkansas, started City View Baptist Church. And I uh, have known him for years, even when I was pastoring there in Cassville. And his wife ended up getting diagnosed with stage four uh, colon cancer. Uh, it is not curable, but it is uh, treatable. And so they have already gotten some good news in, the, in that, you know, it's kind of getting contained. Uh, but they are not, they were not, they, they didn't have any health insurance or anything like that. And it just kind of just totally shocked them. And uh, so the, but the primary tumor, he said, has already shrunk. Uh, it's already less than, than half the size 
uh, that it was. And so just trying to get, just letting you know tonight, these are real people. And they go through real trials and things like that. So we were able to give, we were able to give $500 towards their medical bills uh, that they had. Uh, I think they had uh, a little around uh, around eighty five hundred and nine thousand uh, dollars left on a medical bill that started at about twelve thousand dollars. They raised forty four thousand three hundred sixty seven dollars that night. So that's such a blessing. And so I, you know, this is what I thought. Well, they'll be able to pay that bill off, and any other things they have in the future, they'll be able to get that taken care of. And that was a real blessing. Life Signs Deaf Baptist Church started in, in New Albany, Ohio back in 2018 with Scott Crabtree. And so they're in their fifth year. They're already overflowing with the deaf ministry there, deaf church there. And so they had a plumbing need uh, to repair their baptistry. And I said, I'm in on that one. And so we were able to help out with that. And so they were able to raise uh, $50,000. And so that was a blessing uh, there and uh, just some other ones. Here, here's another one. This was interesting. We actually gave to this before, but Brother Josh Levesque, or Levesque, I believe is how you pronounce his name, is planting Dearborn Baptist Church in Dearborn, Michigan, which is on the west side of Detroit. And I wrote just some of these notes down. It is the highest. Con- it has that city has the highest concentration of Muslims in the U.S. It is actually it is actually referred to as an Islamic city. And <clears throat> they have start they started back in 2021 and they're averaging over 50 right now and so that's a real blessing uh they also host a conference every year to muslims inviting muslims to come they have seen several muslims come and the whole idea of the conference is to defend the deity of jesus christ which is a big deal with the islamic people to show them that jesus is god they have islamic john and romans that they pass out and so we were able to give another $300 uh, towards that. There were some other churches like Brother Anthony DeCuna. We were actually staying in the hotel with him and his dear wife. And uh, they took New Testament Baptist Church up in Spirit Lake, Iowa. It's basically a church rescue. Uh, he was a former missionary to Portugal, pastored in Arizona. Just really an old school testimony. Just went there by faith. And just God led him every step of the way. He's working a full-time job, getting the church uh, started there. And I thought, man, let's get behind that guy. Amen. And uh, just a good, uh, solid, uh, solid man. Uh, There were some other ones uh, as well. Uh, We were able to give to another Spanish ministry there in in, uh, uh, Houston, uh, Texas as well. Certainly a great need there uh, in that area. And so I believe that about wraps all of it up tonight, but just praise the Lord. Amen. We were able to give, uh, towards that and just, uh, wanted to share some of those testimonies with you tonight. Okay, brother. Eric, why don't you come on? What a blessing. Amen. Let's all stand again. Turn to page 335. Love lifted me. We'll sing all three verses tonight. Page number 335. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Very deeply stained within, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, 
love lifted me. All my heart to Him I give, ever to Him I cling. In His blessed presence live, ever His praises sing. Love so mighty and so true merits my soul's best songs. Faithful, loving service to, to Him belongs. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Souls in danger look above, Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by His love out of the angry waves. The master of the sea, billows his will obey. Be your savior wants to be, be saved today. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me, love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Well, amen. Praise the Lord for all he's doing. Thank the Lord tonight for everything he's done already today. Now we get a chance to give back to him. Amen. I'm going to ask Brother Ethan or Josh Whitney over there on the side if you would pray for the offering tonight, please. Amen. You may be seated.
blessing. Let's all stand one last time together tonight. Page 537. Page number 537, Dwelling in Beulah Land. We'll sing the first, third, and last verse together. Verses 1, 3, and 4 tonight. Page number 537. Far away the noise of strife upon my ear is falling. Then I know the sins of earth be set on every hand. Doubt and fear and things of earth in vain to me are calling. None of these shall move me from land I'm living on the mountain underneath the cloudless sky I'm drinking at the fountain that never shall run dry oh yes I'm feasting on the manna from a bountiful supply for I am dwelling in Land. Let the stormy breezes blow, their cry cannot alarm me. I am safely sheltered here, protected by God's hand. Here the sun is always shining, here there's not can harm thee. I am safe forever in Beulah land. I'm living on the mountain underneath the cloudless sky. I'm drinking at the fountain that never shall run dry. Oh yes, I'm feasting on the manna from a bountiful supply for I am dwelling in Beulah land viewing here the works of God I sing in contemplation hearing now his blessed voice I see the way he planned dwelling in the spirit I learned a full salvation. Gladly will I tarry in Beulah land. I'm living on the mountain underneath the cloudless sky. I'm drinking at the fountain that never shall run dry. Oh yes, I'm feasting on the manna from a bountiful supply for I am dwelling in Beulah land. Amen. You may be seated tonight. Just before the message tonight, we'll have a special from the men's quartet. Though the angry surges roll, 
on my tempest-driven soul. I am peaceful, for I know, wildly though the winds may blow, I've an anchor safe and sure that can nevermore endure. And it holds my anchor, my anchor holds Blow your wild gale, gale On my bark so small and frail By His grace I shall not fail For my anchor holds, it firmly holds My anchor holds Mighty tides around me sweep Perils lurk within the deep, angry clouds or shade the sky, and the tempest rises high. Still I stand the tempest shock, for my anchor grips the rock, and it holds my anchor holds. Blow your wild gale. On my bark so small and frail By His grace I shall not fail For my anchor holds it firmly Holds my anchor holds Troubles almost whelm the soul Griefs like billows o'er me roll Tempters seek to lure us astray Storms obscure the light of day, but in Christ I can be bold. I've an anchor that shall hold, and it holds my anchor. Holds blow your wild gale on my bark so small and frail. By His grace I shall not fail. For my anchor holds it firmly, holds my anchor holds, and it holds my anchor holds. Blow your wild gale on my bark so small and frail. By His grace I shall not fail. For my anchor holds it firmly. that was well uh, looking forward to having brother Tim uh, Quinlan tonight uh, right up, and after the service tonight gonna have a baptism and so excited uh, about that see I told you I should introduce you brother that way it gives you a little time there amen so amen cool stuff like this goes on in the youth department all the time amen so, all right come on ahead bro I had to pick those up it was gonna bother me all service I thought, well, you know, they're in a spot where not very many people could see them, but I'm sure someone could, and they would also be bothered by it. So, All right, Second Peter. Uh, as I've said before, I'm so thankful for every opportunity to preach, and I'm thankful to Pastor for, uh, for trusting me enough to, uh, to preach the Word. Of course, we don't ever want to take the Word of God for granted. So... 
Uh, I'm excited. You know, we finally have gotten through 1 Peter. It only took like three and a half years. And uh, we're getting into 2 Peter. It should go by a lot quicker. We, it's, it's a much shorter uh, letter. Uh, but I'm excited. And it's one of those things where, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this going, well, obviously we have to go into 2 Peter after we finish 1 Peter. But when you really get into it, 2 Peter doesn't have a whole lot to do with 1 Peter. I mean, there's some uh, 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 similarities here and there, but really it's a lot m- or much more like Jude and James than it is 1 Peter. Uh, there's a lot of, of uh, uh, material and, and uh, content uh, doctrine that's kind of uh, between all three of those books. In fact, uh, most commentaries, uh, if you find a commentary a series or something, they will combine Jude and Second Peter oftentimes into a volume. And uh, I was, you know, when I first started looking through First Peter, I was I thought, well, I'll just get a commentary. Surely there'll be like a combination, First and Second Peter. You see that a lot. But no, it's always First Peter, and then a completely separate volume has Second Peter and Jude in it. And of course, I already preached through Jude quite a while ago. So, uh, but I'm, I, you know, I felt like this was just where the Lord would have us to uh, go through here. There's there's so much even in Second Peter that's important for us today, and uh, so that's where we're going to be over these next several months. And of course, as many of you know, my habit at the beginning of a book is to kind of explore the background and give some introduction to it. Uh, the reason for that is so that we can kind of all be on the same page. We all know kind of the, the thought process behind the writer and behind uh, some of the things that he's addressing, some of the issues that were arising and things like that. And I think like this is especially helpful for New Testament letters. A lot of Paul's letters and Peter and, of course, John and others, they were writing uh, oftentimes to deal with uh, very serious doctrinal problems uh, and uh, that were arising in the first century church. And what we see is that the same problems they faced in the first century are the same problems often that we face today uh, in our church. So I feel like if we can understand the overall theme and the elements uh, from the outset, we can grasp uh, what is often termed the timeless truths contained therein. On top of that, really we're just going to be looking at the first two verses this evening. Uh, On top of kind of doing that, uh, I don't know that we want to start a book and then basically we'd have to take half the first chapter and as Peter did in his first epistle, he jumps right into the deep end uh, from the get-go here. And so I felt like an introduction would be appropriate. We can kind of go through All of that, there are wonderful doctrinal and ethical truths in this letter, and I'm excited to get into it. So if you would please stand, we're in the second uh, epistle of Peter, uh, chapter 1, and we're going to read just the first two verses. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. Oh, that's such an awesome statement. Through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We're going to see that throughout this book, him talking about knowledge, because we can know God. We can know that we're right with God. We can know what God expects of us. So we're not going to bore you, I hope, with all the minutiae of dates and research and scholarship and all that, but there are some things we need to understand about this letter. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for this time we have together. I pray that uh, we would uh, not make light of it, and certainly we trust that your word will not return void. For you bless all that goes on here, that your spirit would be here, that you would be honored and glorified through what happens here tonight. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. You can read all sorts of different scholars and commentators on any given book of the Bible and find a multitude of beliefs and ideas about inspiration and translation and inerrancy and things like that. I'm going to tell you from the start that we hold to a verbal, historical, grammatical, literal view on the Word of God. As varied as opinions are regarding every book of the Bible, we are coming in at this word, at really all of the Bible, from that perspective because that is how God intended His Word to be viewed. And all those opinions about the various books of the Bible, out of all of them, First and Second Peter stand out. These two letters have been termed the storm center of the New Testament. One man called Second Peter in particular the ugly stepchild of the New Testament. If you try to do some serious study on this letter, you're going to read all sorts of critical scholarship that casts doubts on it. But you'll find that the arguments fall short time and time again. Primarily, they boil down to stylistic and peripheral issues. We even talked about this in 1 Peter. Uh, I'm pretty sure we even talked about this in Jude as well. So often, most of your, what would be termed critical scholarship, those who are uh, going towards Bible uh, interpretation from a critical viewpoint, from a a denial-type viewpoint that would say, well, uh, we don't believe this is really the Word of God because of all these reasons, and they try to give all sorts of reasons, but most of those reasons are boiled down to, well, the style isn't really quite the same, and, or this vocabulary, I mean, come on, could Peter, a lowly fisherman from Galilee, have this kind of vocabulary? Those are the kinds of, of arguments that they come up with, but the fact of the matter is, that's not evidence. I think we can all point to those whom God has taken, especially under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there were those who would preach the Word even today that would tell you, I am no genius, I am no scholar, but God has worked in me to teach me His Word. Uh, We got a missionary uh, uh, introductory letter one time here uh, a while back. And uh, the guy re- was reading through his testimony, good solid testimony, and, and he uh, basically said he had his life planned out. He was getting into uh, academia, he was, uh, a, you know, he didn't really say this, but I gathered from how he was, because it was a very, it was a very kind of high style of writing, and I'm thinking, uh, this guy has certainly some vocabulary and some intelligence to him, and and he was getting into uh, going through years and years of school, not just like a four-year undergraduate program, but he was going to be doing more than that, and he was going to be doing all those kinds of things, getting into science and things like that, and, and he wasn't even going to think about getting married or meeting somebody till he was in his 30s, and that was his life. And then he met this young lady, about 20 years old, 21 thereabouts, And uh, she had a testimony of salvation from a teenager, but she wasn't serving the Lord. She wasn't in church. And they started going out, and and lo and behold, they ended up getting married. And she fell under conviction about being in church and serving the Lord. 
And so she started attending a local Baptist church. And before too long, he begrudgingly would come with her on Sunday mornings. And then before too long, he, he basically had to come to the point where he's trying to reconcile what he's hearing through the preaching of the Word of God and the intelligentsia that he was planning on being a part of and ultimately had to come to the fact, to come face to face with the fact that he was a sinner that needed a Savior. And he, can, of course, he got saved and they joined the church and got involved and they continued on that way, but he was still doing his college and all that kind of stuff. And at a missions conference one, uh, uh, one spring evening, he said, the Lord clearly called us to the mission field. And he left a Ph.D. doctoral program in particle nuclear physics to be a missionary to people who need to hear the gospel. God as much as, as the academia of the world hates God and wants nothing to do with God and feels like they can explain God away and come up with all these arguments that no one could ever possibly think of if it wasn't for, for them, the fact of the matter is God still loves them. God still wants to use them. And God can take the weak things. He loves to take the weak things and confound the wise. So those arguments really just boil down to nothing. This epistle was written by Simon Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Some argue that, well, maybe it was someone else writing later, using Peter's name to have that authority kind of as a pseudonym type thing. But again, the evidence just isn't there. Simon Peter, the apostle, wrote this letter under inspiration from the Holy Spirit. But look at verse 1. Look at what he calls himself. He says, a servant and an apostle. This wording is not often used in the New Testament. In fact, most other instances where it is used, Paul uses it uh, in Romans and, and Titus, I believe. Um, but again, it's, it's a little different. This is the only time where it specifies servant and apostle in the same phrase of Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament, the word servant, when you see that, that's a Greek word, doulos, has the connotation of a slave. That's not just a hired hand. He's not just a, 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 a butler or something like that. No, he's a slave. It's one who is totally owned by a master. Peter is acknowledging his absolute submission to and ownership by Christ. At the same time, Peter calls himself an apostle. Apostle in the Greek literally means a sent one. One who is sent, specifically one who is sent with a message. Though he was only a slave, he had been sent on a mission by his master with a message. You know what that means? While he had no authority in and of himself to write this letter and command what he is commanding, his master does. When Caesar sent a slave with a message, those to whom he was sent had no choice but to offer him the same respect that Caesar commanded. We could go to Matthew chapter 21 and see the same principle at work in the parable of the vineyard that the owner of the vineyard would send his servants and send his son expecting that the husbandman of the vineyard would give them the same respect that they would give the owner. And of course they didn't and he destroyed them. 
We could look back to 2 Samuel chapter 10. When the king of Ammon died and his son took over, David sent his servants as ambassadors to the king to, uh, to comfort him and, and show some solidarity in his father's death because uh, the, the, that king of Ammon had, and David had been close allies. And his son took his servants and stripped their beards and cut their clothes and treated them shamefully, the Bible says. And David treated it, rightfully so, as if they had done it to David himself. This is a principle that is held true throughout history. Even today, governments expect that ambassadors are given the same uh, uh, treatment that the leader of their country would be given. When a government, when a king, when a powerful or wealthy individual sends an ambassador, in this case an apostle, that person and his message are to have the same consideration given to the king or the governor. Peter says, I'm just a slave, but I'm a slave with a message from a very important person. What's somewhat unclear are the recipients of the letter. It's not addressed to a church or a group of churches in a particular area. It's not ad addressed to an individual. It is addressed to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. Now we're going to see throughout the letter that it's likely written much like his first letter to a more Gentile Christian audience. Uh, probably among the same churches that he had written his first letter to. Uh, we'll see some, some evidence for that later on in the letter. Some say, well, uh, uh, the, you know, there, there aren't as many uh, Old Testament Jewish imagery like he uses in the first letter, um, but there are Old Testament references like Noah there in chapter 2, uh, but it isn't replete with Jewish imagery like the first letter. Um, and a lot of people would say, well, you know, this letter was written to Christians in general. Of course, that does happen throughout the New Testament as uh, with like the book of Jude and James. And I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with that. Of course, the term often used is Catholic, that it's a Catholic letter, meaning universal. Of course, I'm not a big fan of that term anyways. Uh, but ultimately, though in the grand scheme of things, being part of the canon of Scripture, it was certainly meant for all Christians, as much as every word of Scripture was meant for all Christians. I think Peter did write this uh, letter to a specific group of people, people who were dealing with uh, some of the uh, doctrinal errors and false teachings that were uh, spreading throughout churches in that day. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, I think it would, I would tend to think it'd be more to a more specific group of Christians, not necessarily just Christianity at large, uh, because of what we'll see later on in the book. I mean, cl Peter clearly has knowledge of those to whom he is writing. Uh, in verse 12 of chapter 1, he acknowledges that his readers know what he's about to tell them. Uh, in chapter 2, he gets very specific in his warnings to them. He mentions that this is the second epistle they had received from him, and some would say, well, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that the first epistle would have been the first book of Peter, I mean, because it was common for apostles to write letters back and forth. Uh, even Paul has other letters that we don't have that aren't in Scripture. Uh, but, you know, with all of that, uh, even in chapter 3 in particular, he refers to his readers as beloved uh, so while we don't maybe know exactly who this letter was, letter was written to, it did have a specific audience with real doctrinal and spiritual problems that needed addressed. 
Like we saw in 1 Peter, this letter was probably written in the mid to late 60s A.D. Of course, we've talked about how the tradition holds Peter was uh, killed. He was crucified under uh, the direction of Emperor Nero, who died in 68 A.D. While I'm not one to uh, bow to, tr- to the tradition too much, that's one of those areas I, I think is, uh, we can be pretty certain of. And the persecution Peter references in his first letter is most likely the empire-wide persecution that started around that time, much of it under the emperor Nero. So it likely would have been written uh, shortly before his death in the mid to late 60s AD. Here's my favorite part. Second Peter belongs to two different classes of literature. The first is the letter. We see a lot of that in the New Testament. It follows the normal style of a first century letter. Uh, We've gone over that before, but it's also the second class is a, a, a almost a testament, a farewell speech. I think we'll see that throughout this letter. Uh, Probably most of us have heard the term a last will and testament. And I don't know that we could necessarily say this was his last will and testament, but it was certainly a farewell speech to those he loved. In chapter uh, 1, verse 14, he says, "...knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me." He recognizes that his time on this earth is short. And it's not just, well, we don't know the day or the time. No, he's acknowledging, I'm going to be dead soon. My time is very short, he's saying. Uh, Many have called this letter a summary of Peter's ethical and doctrinal teaching. Uh, In fact, a good portion of chapter 1, some would see as a a farewell message uh, from verses 3 to 11, which we'll deal with next time, and and, uh, kind kind of summarizing much of what he's trying to teach. You can see throughout the letter the final encouragements and warnings that he's given to his readers. So as we go through this letter, you have to keep that in the back of your mind. That that kind of colors everything that he's writing here. Every verse is written with the knowledge that he himself was not long for this world. He wanted to give them everything he could before his time was up. And I really think that informs this phrasing in verse 1. To them that have obtained life precious faith with us. Haven't you realized that the older you get, the more you realize how precious salvation is? the more you realize how precious our faith is. I think it's telling that he uses the word faith. Uh, Maybe it reminds you of another similar usage, like in Jude, when Jude reminds his readers to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered. This faith Peter is talking about, I think is the same as what Jude was talking about. And while it certainly starts with salvation, I think it's much more comprehensive than that. That it is salvation, it is the doctrine that has been handed down to them. This faith covers things like the Word of God, the church, His return, foreshadowing that's going to come up later on in the letter. All of the things that make up the message that Jesus Christ gave to His apostles and that His apostles uh, preached and taught on and that churches were continuing to teach and to preach on, the faith that was once delivered to the saints. I mentioned there's a lot of similarities between 2 Peter and Jude. 
We're going to see, just like we saw in Jude a few years ago, there's going to be some eschatology involved throughout the letter. There's going to be some warnings about the use and oftentimes abuse of Scripture. And he's going to get into great detail about false teachers and the snares they use. But notice the last part of verse 1. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That like precious faith was not gained by their effort. It wasn't even gained through their own righteous living. It was given to them. The picture behind the phrasing here is that of a favor. So they obtained this precious faith as a favor from God. His righteousness brought them salvation. His righteousness covered their sin. And all they and all you had was wickedness. Filthy rags, Isaiah says. We looked at Genesis chapter 15 in Sunday school with the teens this morning. If you're not sure, that's the passage where the Abrahamic covenant is ratified. And the central focus of that passage is the Scripture's testimony of Abraham. It says in verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. That's all God has ever required of mankind. That's all we could possibly do. We simply must take Him at His word. That belief, that simple faith counts, or God counts as righteousness. We could put it this way. Through faith, God attributes His own righteousness to us. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us through or because of or by means of the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. During this time, there were false teachings ravaging churches. Gnosticism and Epicureanism were two of the big ones. Peter is primarily going to deal with Epicureanism, though there is some Gnosticism he's going to deal with in this letter. And of course, we've heard about Gnostics before because there's a good portion of the New Testament that deals with those false teachings. Epicureanism is maybe a little bit less known among us today, but uh, of course it was started and, and, and made popular and kind of uh, 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 put together by a philosopher named Epicurus. Epicurus uh, basically would say, well, yeah, there's deities. Of course, he was a Greek philosopher and with Greek mythology and all that. And so he would acknowledge that, well, yeah, there's deities and mythology, mythology and all of that. But, you know, they don't really deal in the world. They don't really deal with us. And so that, uh, these false teachers were taking that philosophy and transferring that to the church. And basically they were saying things like, well, God doesn't really intervene in the world today. Like he set the world in motion, but uh, he's not really, you know, active in the affairs of men, which really comes down to we're on our own. Therefore, there is no reward for the righteous and no punishment for the wicked. Since there's no reward for the righteous, there would be no resurrection. And since there's no punishment for the wicked, there would be no hell and no final judgment. Throughout this letter, Peter is going to refute those false teachings. He deals with the fact that we can know there is a God in heaven and He is active in the affairs of men. What you do 
matters. Because you will answer to your Creator one day. We live in a world that hates responsibility. It's amazing to think, when you, when you think about the, the uh, litigation that takes place, in, especially in the Western culture today, that uh, everyone is constantly suing for this thing or that thing or the other thing, and, and stuff that a few decades ago people would have said, well, no, that's your own fault. Don't be dumb. That people would go ahead and sue someone for that nowadays. It's amazing to, I don't know, it's hard to reconcile that because people are pushing so much for someone to take responsibility and yet they're going the opposite direction and refusing to take responsibility for anything. I've really emphasized to the teens in Genesis that so much of sin starts and, and sin loves Lack of responsibility. There's contrast throughout the Word of God. Many times you don't even realize it. We've seen things like in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they sinned, they broke God's law, and though God had to confront them about it and prod them about it and question about it, ultimately they admitted, and I did eat. They admitted their wrong. They admitted their sin. And they were able to Come forward from that. And then you have Cain in the very next chapter who is living rebelliously in his heart before God. He's trying to go through the motions and do the sacrifices and all of that, but his heart is not right with God. And so often another thing we see throughout the Scriptures is that it's not about going through the motions and, well, I'm at church or, well, I made my sacrifice because God cares much more about the heart behind the sacrifice than He does the sacrifice. We see that in Samuel dealing with King Saul. And so Cain, going through the motions and hoping everyone would just kind of keep going and not notice, God confronts him about it. That he was living rebelliously and God warned him that he was going to do something really stupid. And he ignored God's warning. And sure enough, he killed his brother. Somehow he was able again to, 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 in his mind, put the responsibility for his own sin and his own failure on Abel. And so he murdered his own brother. And once again, God confronted him like he did Adam and Eve. And in the entire conversation, we're not going to go there, but in the entire conversation between God and Cain, not once does Cain acknowledge that he has done anything wrong? All he has to say is, this punishment's greater than I can bear. He doesn't admit his sin. He, doesn't, he certainly doesn't plead for forgiveness or acknowledge anything like that, but he doesn't even acknowledge that it was wrong that he killed his brother. He refused. And God can't honor that. There was no way to come forward from that not repenting before God. And so then Cain left the presence of God, separated from the godly society and the family, the godly family, and said, I'm going to start my own society and built his own city. And man, since then, has become so focused with a legacy, 
so focused with making a name for myself, so focused with, with being put in the history books, he led his children and grandchildren to be great men, to become artificers of brass and iron, the Bible says, and music and instruments and cattle and uh, agriculture and all of that. They worked, I'm, I am convinced that some of the great ruins and, and monuments that we don't know anything about over in, especially in Africa and the Middle East and those kind of places, some of those I'm sure came from Cain and his, his, uh, his uh, civilization that he was building, and yet no one attributes it to them. They were wiped from the face of the earth in God's judgment in chapter 5 and 6. They, they left God. They turned their backs on God to make a name for themselves. They continued further on into sin, but they faced judgment for it. And what we see throughout the Word of God, what we see throughout history is that man will always face judgment for his actions. Man will answer. The original civilization answered for their wickedness in a flood. What we'll see, and of course, uh, uh, we haven't gotten there yet, but we're going through, of course, I mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, in that same chapter, God tells Abram that the uh, iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full, that really God was giving them space to repent, and they would take another several hundred years and only become more wicked. And they faced judgment for it. The children of Israel, time and time again throughout their history, faced judgment for their wickedness. And the Epicureans would come in and say, well, God's not really dealing in the affairs of men, and God's not active in the world, and so, uh, you know, we, we need to live morally right, and we need to do these good things, but... But it really doesn't matter as far as trying to you know, witness and, and lead people to Christ and see them saved. And there's really nothing to repent of because there's no judgment. I mean, I mean yeah, you, you could do bad things and make people mad. And you probably need to try to smooth that over with people. But it's not like you're sinning against God. God doesn't really care. Peter says, no, that's, that, nothing could be further from the truth. God cares. And even if you were to say, well, yeah, but you know, we're not part of the children of Israel, well, God's judgment wasn't restricted to just the children of Israel. We see throughout the New Testament that each and every one of us individually will answer to our Creator. And we can't do enough good to cover our bad works. We can't earn God's blessing or His pleasure. Yet all He's ever asked of us is simple faith. is to take Him at His word. The same faith that Abraham had in Genesis chapter 15 is the same faith that God asks of us today. And yet if we don't give it, we will still answer to God. And there will be an eternal punishment for our sin. Peter's going to deal with all of this. That the false teachers would face destruction just like the 
old world faced destruction, and yet Noah and his family were saved. He deals with that in chapter 2. He deals with Sodom and Gomorrah being turned into ashes because of their absolute wicked living. And he says they were made an example unto those that after should live ungodly. He even calls Lot just and righteous. You know, going through Genesis in the, in the teen department on Sunday mornings, I have had to, to uh, uh, be very careful about, you know, we're getting to that section where uh, Abram and we're dealing with Abraham and Lot, and uh, we've already dealt with their split, uh, how that Lot looks upon the great land and says, I want that stuff, and Abraham uh, is living by faith and ultimately recognizes that this whole land is his anyways, so he doesn't have to fight for it. Whereas Lot was living by sight, and he looked at the well-watered plains, and before too long, in fact, the very next chapter, he pitched his tent towards Sodom, and the very next chapter, he was living in Sodom. And he, I think, felt some judgment, some punishment from that when the invading kings came in and took them captive, which drew Abraham and the, the men that were with him into the conflict. And I love the Bible's People say, oh, the Bible's boring. No, it's not. You know what the Bible calls, what Genesis chapter 14 calls uh, the battle that Abram and the men that were with him? It says, after they returned from the slaughter. It wasn't just, yeah, they were victorious. They won the battle. It says it was so bad it was a slaughter. But even Abram and Lot, though they were just and trying to live for the Lord, they face judgment from time to time. Next week, we're going to get into chapter 16 in Sunday school, where Sarah's going to say, well, I'm too old, so take my handmaid, Hagar. Have a child by her. But the promise of God had nothing to do with Hagar or anyone else. The promise of God was Abram and Sarah. We've already seen God protect that when they went down into Egypt and concocted a scheming lie to try to protect themselves. And after, after the events of chapter 15, the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant that God would, would uh, uh, make this covenant, this legally binding contract. We talked about how that the animals were cut in half and set on uh, their pieces uh, 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 apart from one another. And so it was a custom in that day that all of the parties to the contract would walk in between those uh, cut-up animal pieces. And the idea was, if I don't fulfill this contract, let this happen to me. But Abram didn't walk through the pieces. Only God in the burning lamp passed between the pieces. Because God's covenant with Abram was much more than just with Abram. It was much more than just the land and the seed and all that as far as Isaac goes. God's covenant was to send the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world. In fact, we saw it last Wednesday night in teens in John chapter 4 that the Samaritan village believed and they came out and said, we recognize that Jesus isn't just the Savior of the Samaritans or of the Jews, but He is the Savior of the world. And the Gnostics would come out and say, well, yeah, that's all well and good. You need to believe in Jesus, but there's higher spiritual knowledge that you need to 
You be part of our inner circle and you can get this spiritual knowledge. You have the agnostics who'd say, well, we can't really know. And Peter would say, we can know. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And the end of both of those verses, when he talks about the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, and then again, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, the, uh, the typical Greek construction there has to do with uh, pointing out that this is referring to one person. That it's not talking about, well, yeah, it's God the Father and Jesus Christ who is subservient to God, though He is the second person of the Trinity. No, He's saying that Jesus Christ is very God, and very God came among us who was the Word and the light to confront us with our need for a Savior through righteousness that we can't gain on our own. And he's willing to impute his own righteousness on us. There is a hell. There is final judgment. In fact, Peter talks about there in the end of chapter 2 that these false teachers would end up facing serious, serious judgment for their false teaching. In fact, in verse 21 of chapter 2, it says, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. It says, don't be washed and then return to the filth. Don't put your faith in Christ and then let the false teachers come in and go, well, we have this, you know, you're, you're on this low level of spiritualism or you're on this low level of uh, intelligentsia. And let's, let's grow our knowledge here and, and go to these higher realms and, and we can get all part of this, you know, this academic learning who denies their God and Savior. It says, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest. That's the same terminology that Jude uses. To whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. It says, don't follow after those false teachers because there are eternal consequences. Those who believe in Jesus will have God's righteousness attributed to them and therefore will live with Him in eternity. And those who do not believe will perish in judgment. In fact, the entirety of creation will be judged. In that day, sin will be abolished and all things will be made new. But until that day, God is long-suffering. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. <laughs> I never thought until recently about this much. I mean, we hear that verse, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Pastor mentioned this morning that repentance is part of salvation. That God doesn't say, well, everyone needs to, needs to turn a new leaf. Uh, everyone needs to... Uh, um, 
uh, just, you know, be better moral people, or everybody needs to read their Bible more, everybody needs to be in church, or everybody needs to say this prayer and you'll be saved. No, he says you need to repent. So you're left with a choice then. Will you believe? There are only two possible eternal destinations. Heaven and hell. Both are real. Both are literal places. The difference is simple faith. In verse 3 of chapter 3, it says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And guess what? We see that today. That some would say, well, everything is continued from the beginning, that, that we still see the earth rotating like it always has, and the moon orbiting around the earth like it always has, and we have uh, spring and summer and fall and winter and the, the seasons as they've always gone, and, and everything's just continuing on, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Y'all have been waiting for 2,000 years. And the Epicureans would say, well, in fact, uh, at this point, they were really getting towards the end of that first generation after Christ. And so, you know, if, if, if you're not aware of this, throughout a, the New Testament, we can see in Paul's writings in particular, they expected Christ to return any minute. Uh, they, many of them thought that Christ would return before they were dead. We're getting to that point when this book was written where they were saying, well, that first generation's passing off the scene and Christ still hasn't returned. Where is the promise of His coming? And so they would come in with those kind of arguments, those kind of thoughts. Well, Christ hasn't returned yet. You thought He would return already. He's not here yet, so clearly you misunderstood something. Well, here's some logic that maybe you hadn't thought of. He's not going to return because there's really no final judgment. Verse 5 says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store. You know how I know that God is active in the world today? Because it is His power that sustains the universe. The universe that has been corrupted by sin. Reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And I love verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Because not only is Peter, go, people go, pardon me, Peter going to denounce these false teachers throughout this book, he's also going to remind them of the truth of God's Word. That God will always keep His promises. We saw that again in Genesis chapter 15 this morning, that the covenant that God made to send His Son, to send the Messiah, had nothing to do with Abraham, had everything to do with God and His promises and His certainty. We see throughout the Scriptures, time and time again, 
where God's promises appear to be in jeopardy. God told Abram that his descendants would pass through a time of great suffering and slavery in a foreign land. That this horror of, when this horror of great darkness came upon Abram and, and all of this was this ceremony, if you will, was taking place, God was showing him some terrible things that would happen. But in spite of the terrible circumstances, in spite of the suffering, in spite of the death, God's promise was never in doubt. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, I already mentioned this, but that all should come to repentance. So they would say, well, there is no resurrection of the dead. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, so that, so that what we'll see is that Jesus, and probably most of you would know this, but Jesus will return, and He will take up uh, those who've trusted in Him into heaven. And of course, we, uh, we could go to Revelation and talk about how the, the tribulation time would come, but after that tribulation time, that God will judge all. That even Jesus reigning here on the earth physically for a thousand years just shows us how wicked we are because men will still rebel at the end of that. But the day of the Lord will come at that time. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. People often kind of forget about that part. Well, Jesus is going to come back and everything's going to be peachy keen from then on. No, the day's going to come where God is going to have to purify the universe to abolish sin once and for all. There's going to be a final judgment. And it's not just judgment on us for our works before the Lord. And so uh, everyone that is saved or not will still stand before their Creator. And those who are not saved, those whose names are not found in the book of life, will face eternal punishment for their sin. But all of the creation will face punishment. And He encourages, encourages them about the long-suffering and patience of God. He encourages them that they need to be witnessing, that they need to reject the false teachers, and they can be grounded in the truth of God's Word. He encourages them because He was an eyewitness of Christ's majesty. He tells them, I, I know that you know these things, You've accepted these things as they've been passed down from the apostles and those who are eyewitnesses of Christ. But he reminds them, verse 16 of chapter 1, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. We almost got to that this morning and Pastor stopped just a couple verses too soon. When Christ was baptized, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Remember, Peter was up in the Mount of Transfiguration. He truly saw Christ glorified on this earth. He's also going to encourage them that the Word of God is true and real and worth trusting. Verse 19 says, We, also, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, which is what the false teachers were doing, which is what false teachers are doing today, that they're going, uh, uh, going around and saying, well, Christ appeared to me and, and came to me in my room in a vision in the night. No prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. That, well, God showed me this from this verse, from this passage. And you look at it and go, that, I don't think that's saying what you're thinking it's saying. says of those teachers, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and have forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. We can trust the Word of God. We can trust in the promises of God which means that we have a choice, which means that judgment is coming one day, which means that when the Word of God says you must repent and trust in Christ, then you must. The false teachers are still around today. They deny judgment. They deny God's wrath. They deny His love and His care for us. But no matter how smart they may sound, no matter how persuasive they are, they know nothing. They are as dogs returning to vomit. You can know that salvation is real and that God will work in your life and He does work in the matters of men. Will you believe His Word? All He's ever asked is simple faith. Everything that you could possibly be called to do by God starts with faith. Faith that leads to salvation. Faith that leads to God's righteousness being imputed unto you. Will you believe? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness towards us.